0: Welcome to the Palia Podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at parlia.com, the Encyclopedia of Opinion. Today, we're thrilled to be talking to Dr. Oliver Scott-Curry. Oliver is the research director at Kindness.org and also a research affiliate at the School of Anthropology at Oxford. Oliver's an expert on morality. We're thrilled to have you with us, Oliver.
1: I'm I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Um, Well, I think probably the easiest place to start, or the hardest place to start, is to ask you um, what morality is.
1: Well, morality is, is basically a collection of cooperative rules, uh, uh, way, ways of getting along, ways of promoting cooperation, ways of promoting the common good. Um, they come in a variety of shapes and forms, these rules. Some are instincts, some are intuitions, some are cultural inventions. But what they all have in common is that they help us solve recurrent social problems, recurrent um, problems of cooperation that we
0: face as a social species. So perhaps it, it, we should also look at the things that you think morality is not. They are not divine rules. They are not hardwired internal precepts. They're not, wh- wh- what are the ways in which other people have understood morality? Or what, it, what What's the novelty in your approach to describing morality as this collaborative series of rules? Right, so I mean, there's, there's probably been
1: three or four major attempts to explain what morality is or explain where it comes from. One is that morality has a supernatural origin and their, their divine commands and they, and our, our, our moral ideas have been put in our head by uh, a divine being, some sort of God. Um, another view is that morality is natural and we have a range of, uh, they're part of our animal nature and that we have a range of moral instincts. Um, another view is that morals are just in inventions, Be, um, h- humans have invented these rules like they've invented other bits of culture and they've passed them down from uh, parent to child through fables and stories and sermons and things. Um, and a, maybe a fourth view is that morals are the outcome of some sort of rational process, some um, uh, rational re- reflection or uh, logical working out of the of the best way to live. Um, I don't think there's a, there's any evidence that there's in, there's no evidence of any supernatural intervention in general, let alone in our moral instincts. And for various complicated reasons, I think the the rational answer is uh, doesn't work, doesn't make sense. So we're left with uh, a combination of of nature and nurture, basically that. Um, um, our morals are partly due to our um, our animal nature, the fact that we're a social species and have lived together in social groups for millions of years and have evolved to uh, make the most of social living and, and seize the various opportunities for cooperation, for mutual gain, that social living affords. And more recently, humans are, as uh, intelligent apes have invented um some new and improved ways of cooperating and have um passed those along too so it's a mixture of biology and culture genes and environment nature and nurture
0: that's fascinating um h- h- how do we how do we learn it therefore how does that cultural piece get translated down i want to ask you about the sort of the more mm. hardwired bits the natural pieces but um but mm. but how do we learn the ways had we learned to be moral well so the first answer is that we
1: a lot of it we don't have to learn it comes naturally um it it, uh, it it emerges it grows naturally during our childhood just like our um our second set of teeth or um we get we get bigger or the development of language so in many ways it, it comes naturally we don't have to Sort of absorb it from the environment, um, but but we also the things that we do absorb from the environment come from a variety of sources, so uh, which are not entirely known. So it seems uh, one general theory is that our our morals, our moral presets, are are sculpted by the environment we find ourselves in in terms of um, how cooperative is the world that you're born into and which kinds of cooperation are most prevalent or most lucrative or um, most well established. So if you're born into a society that is uh, where you live in large groups of extended kin then the ethics of kinship and the obligations to family loom larger than if you're born into a society where you live in for example relatively smaller nuclear families and where the, uh, the opportunities for Say trade and exchange and, and fair dealing are more important in your life and more more lucrative, and hence where the ethics of fairness and reciprocity loom larger. So we we come with a lot of the morality built in, a lot of the settings built in, but they are fine tuned and parameterized by the world that you find yourself in. Um, and there's and there's also uh, going back to the fact that humans invent different ways of doing things there's also different local cultural traditions that you that you pick up in the same way as you pick up different cuisines or ways of cooking that vary in a in more contingent way between um, different places so again it's a mixture of um, your, your sort of your animal instincts the responses to the environment you find yourself in and the culture you inherit
0: I'm just struck as you talk about the differences in culture, which I want to come on to in a minute. Um, have there been any good hi- moral histories? By which I mean, um, could, could, you, could you map a moral history of, the, of Britain, for example, looking at the various different ways in which our societies were has, has been ordered um, and the different moral injunctions or the, or the, 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 the greater weighting of certain moral functions Depending on those societal structures. Well, that um, that's a yeah, that's a good question. I'm not
1: aware of of, of a good one, um, although that that would be it would be good to good to have one. Um, I think there hasn't been there. I suspect there couldn't have been one because we haven't understood morality as well as we do now. In the past, so it would be difficult to write a really sort of detailed history of the rise and fall of these different. Um, t- types of cooperation and types of morality i think the the, the the relevant material i have seen is on a on a broader scale of a kind of shift what happens when you shift from as it were traditional to modern societies and like as i mentioned the the general or or the sort of the deep and distant past to uh, to, um, to nowadays the the really big difference between then and now is this shift? relative important of family structures to trade structures. Um, uh, so you you go from relying on and feeling obliged to the in, in traditional societies you you are obliged to fairly stable, well established, familiar relation people relationships with people with who are familiar to you, your family, your village, your your chief, as it were. Um, and the transition to modern societies is the destabilizing of those relationships they become more fluid and uh, less established and so it shifts your relationships shift to the, the benefits of um, of trade and exchange and how to make new friends how to meet new people how to make the most of living in a more mobile mixed up society so i think sometimes it's called the shift from status to contract so once upon a time you're uh, what you what you felt obliged to do and what you were expected to do depended on your status in the community, whether you were a member of this family or that family, or your how high up in the hierarchy you are. Um, so it's sh- a shift from your status to your contract, which which obligations you've you've chosen.
0: Oliver, tell me how that would feel differently. That shift from status society to contract society, how would that change the ways in which we understood what was good, moral?
1: Well, because in in the first case, in the in the in the, the, the status societies, traditional societies, it's important for you to be loyal to your group, to be um, loyal and deferential to your uh, to your your family, to your father, um, to be obedient to the chief, for example. Um, so it's 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 an and to be uh, to be heroic and brave and display your virtues through um daring do and and uh, warfare and um by being the the bravest warrior and killing the most of the of next door's tribe so it's a, it's an ethics, so it's of kinship ethics of group loyalty ethics of um of of bravery and of deference um when you move to uh, to more mobile societies those things don't disappear altogether i mean people people still have those intuitions they still recognize that those are Moral concerns, but they lose out relative to the ethics of um, uh, of reciprocity, of impartiality, of um, of fairness. So one 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 of many interesting contrasts is that actually is that that difference between being partial and being impartial. So we in the modern West think of impartiality, uh, treating everyone equally, as the sin qua non of what it means to be moral. Um, to be to be impartial is good, and to be partial. Uh, to show favoritism uh, is is bad, whereas in many traditional societies, it's completely the opposite way around. Um, the idea that you'd be impartial between a member of your family and a stranger would be is a, is anathema, and it's explicitly the the wrong thing to do. Um, you, on the contrary, your um, your moral obligations are partial. They're part. They're, they that you positively ought to favor your family, ought to favor your village. Um, you ought to. Uh, prefer your chief over some uh, abstract I- ideal. So um, th- that's that's the, the way in which it changes. and there's a nice um, there's a nice di- little moral dilemma that's done the rounds, which typifies a lot of this. So I think a guy called Tr- Trompanas has used this dilemma where you, you say, imagine your father has been has committed some serious crime. Do you turn him into the authorities or not? And it turns out that in in most Western modern Western societies, everyone says, "Well, yes, of course. You know, if he's if your father's murdered someone, of course you turn him into the authorities. That's the the right thing to do." Whereas in many um, many non-Western traditional societies, it's the reverse. Well, of course, your your first loyalty is to your
0: family, is to your parents, and why would you, um, you know, why would you sacrifice your your own? This distinction between status and contract societies can can both societies do both societies exist in the modern west do you see both societies in the us do you see both societies in the uk today
1: definitely so it's it's not a question there, there are various different types of morality different different moral taste buds if you like and the the argument isn't that that, that some are completely absent in the west and some are completely absent um, in in uh, elsewhere um, rather, it's just that the the mix is different. The priority given to them is different. The, the way that they're ranked uh, is different. Um, and certainly, you can find examples of, uh, you know, um, s- strong feelings of of uh, strong family values, strong loyalty to your locality, to your 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 town, your state, your um, your country, uh, in a strong strong deference to the chief. In um, in america and elsewhere so it's not that they are absent it's just that they're um relatively less important but sure you can find uh, within any particular um, political unit in particular country you can also you can find subgroups and subcultures where um you find a different mix and um, wh- one of the uh jonathan height's work on moral foundations w- was originally motivated by trying to look at the differences between for example liberals and conservatives in the US and he argued that and, and he that's roughly what he found that <clears throat> liberals and conservatives differ on how important they place um your the obligations to your to your um to your country to like pa- patriotism for nationalism patriotism, for example um and how important it is to defer to authorities with conservatives deferring, uh, tending to defer more and conservatives being more um, religious as well. So there has been some work looking at the different moral complexities of liberals and conservatives, and it hasn't entirely withstood critical scrutiny and more recent work and some of, I'm only just beginning to get into the area of morals and politics, but more recent work and some of our initial work suggest that there there is a there certainly does seem to be a difference between liberals and conservatives, but the difference is closer to what I was saying before that conservatives it's almost as if conservatives prioritize conserving the relationships they have the established relationships they have um, with, with family and group and uh, compatriots and things, um, whereas liberals are have fewer of those established relationships and are more interested in uh, seeking out and establishing new relationships um, are more sort of entrepreneurial uh, if you like so the conservatives conservatives are, are more family oriented and more loyal to their groups because they have families and are more um, connected with their groups whereas liberals are um, more individualistic in the sense uh, not in the selfish sense but in the sense of Um, in the contractual sense of um, choosing the relationships that they, uh, choosing the relationships they have and seeking to turn them over to um, improve them and try out new configurations.
0: I'm struck that that there's a, there are differences inside Nations or societies themselves, between status ones and contract ones to use your terms here, but I am also struck by the fact that there's also possible generational cleavages between those two. Do you see that Do you, have you seen that I'm, I, I can I can imagine a society as it moves from a status to a contractual um, understanding uh, of relationship um, that would have a major generational fracture between between those two.
1: Yeah, I have, so I haven't worked on that directly. I mean, one thing that you'd expect is, and seems to be the case, is that people become more conservative as they get older. Um, apparently, it's the switch point. I read recently the switch point is somewhere in the early for in your early forties. That's the typical that's the typical tipping point between being left wing or or right wing, um, and that's not surprising on this view because you know you accumulate. Relationships and obligations as you go. And when, as you are older, you have, um, you know, and you start a family and you settle down somewhere, you have, you, have, you have more relationships to conserve. Whereas when you're young, free, and single, that, that isn't the case. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a not so much um, a cohort effect, but just an age effect that um, younger people and older people are differently situated. That's part of it. And brackets, edit this bit. There was another. I was going to
0: make another point, but I've forgotten what it was. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, there were two things. One, one there was the piece around um, that shift, sort of, of co- becoming more conservative, becoming more status-based yeah. as you get older. But I, the question I was asking you whether I, I don't know, nineteen forty-five to nineteen sixty is profoundly status, and then from nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty is contractual. I was, I was asking you about this shift from. Um, a generation, generational cleavages between approaches to um, relationships. Right. So
1: you, so you, okay. So you, you certainly would expect and see some difference between the the old and young. And sure, I haven't. I don't know for sure, and I haven't worked on this. But yeah, you. In theory, you would predict that people who have spent their formative years in different facing different problems, or different cooperative opportunities might carry those values through the rest of their lives. So if you if you came of age during the Second World War, where the people of your country had a huge mutual interest in self-preservation, and you had to work together, it was a matter of life or death whether you worked together or not, those communal values um, might persist afterwards, long afterwards. Whereas if you came to a came of age in a society where uh, your country wasn't facing that huge communal external threat, and you, in, if you came to age in the eighties where y- your success depended on being being a wheeler dealer and making the best deals, getting the best bargains, then similarly, um, th- those values might stay with you too.
0: Can I ask you, Oliver, what? Actually, happens in our head with these in our heads with these moral decisions. Is 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 a moral decision? Is a moral thought different from a rational thought? What what's the sort of psychological mechanism of of morality? Right.
1: Uh, well, that's, <laughs> you're asking all, all the big questions. Um, well, I mean, to a first approximation, people are not sure. They don't like so. I can't give you a definitive answer. But, but broadly speaking, I don't think morality our moral decisions are radically different to des- decisions we make in other areas, um, in the sense that there's a range of outcomes that we value. And we have a range of tried and tested uh, strategies, heuristics, rules for bringing about those outcomes, for promoting the interests of the people we care about, or um, uh, establishing not, not being cheated or um, establishing a reputation as a uh, as a heroic person or something. So we have a range of values, um, cooperative values. We have a range of strategies for bringing them about. And on top of that, we can engage in a bit of instrumental reasoning, a bit of calculation about which, um, which of the options in front of us are gonna bring about the, the best outcomes for us and the people we care about. So it's the same as if you're, you know, it's not, it's not radically different to choosing what you're going to have for dinner or, wh- or where you're going to live. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, it's a bit more complicated because it involves other people and other people are complicated. But in principle, it's no different. So there's a range of things that we want, cooperative outcomes. And we, we strive to achieve them in the way that we try to achieve other things that we want. So.
0: I mean, is there a thing called conscience?
1: Uh, yeah I think that I mean conscience is a is is a name is a label that we attach to a co- collection of these mechanisms, these cooperative impulses. I mean, in addition, humans have a few upgrades on their moral psychology. it's It's not only these uh, sort of a- ancient um, moral instincts there's a f- there's upgrades in terms of things like theory of mind being able to think about what other people are thinking. It's very important in our in our moral decision making, not least because it en- enables us to do things like distinguish between uh, if somebody hurts us, we can distinguish between whether they did it on purpose, was it, whether it was their intention to hurt us or whether they did it um, whether it was an accident. And we can treat them differently as a result. It also enables us to think about what other people are thinking about us and how they might uh, view us and how they might view our actions. So that that seems to be another aspect of conscience, the, the little voice inside that tells us that someone else might be watching.
0: Interesting, okay, yeah. Um, perhaps a very dumb question, but um, on the premise that there is no um, big guy telling us, dictating morality from a cloud somewhere, and purely is cooperative, um, and it's pure, it's, it, 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 these are, these are, so socially constructed rules which have, have been around so long they've embedded also into our nature, um, do you think there's any concern that we might not need to follow moral rules? Do you, how important is, how 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 important are they to our sense of who we are? And I, this, this question arises simply because you've just flagged the importance of what other people think. How important is that what other people think or is actually our performance of our own morality intrinsic to who we think of ourselves of as people. Okay. Um, I mean,
1: co- so I, f- all, I find that all talk of morality can get a bit confusing and and um, mystical and magical and so on. And if you translate the word, mor- I think moral is just another word for cooperative. And so whenever I get stuck, I just translate, tra- translate it back to Cooperation or cooperative so it's certainly it's certainly the case that being cooperative is enormously important to uh, us as humans it's arguably our big our biggest asset it's what's um, enabled humans to be as successful as they are so it's fan- and and that's reflected in our internal value structure i mean being um, being a part of a of a successful cooperative unit Um, having successful cooperative relationships is there's almost nothing more important than that and to miss out on that is the big sort of the biggest opportunity cost possible and that is reflected on how that explains why um, morality is so important to us and why we value it so much and why we strive to be seen as good people and why we are so motivated to punish bad people um, and think of it as so important so I don't think I don't think that's the importance of cooperation and hence morality is not going anywhere Um, and that's reflected actually in some nice studies on moral identity so people uh, in various psychological experiments and surveys people rate uh, their their moral identity how how good they are and how good they're seen by others as the most important thing about themselves the most important part of their identity the most important thing about other people there's some (coughs) excuse me there's um some studies by, I'll have to look up the name, I'm sorry, uh, Tui, but I, I want to say Nina, someone, I'll have to come, you can, I'll, put, I'll give you the link afterwards. it. Anyway, um, there's some interesting studies asking people um, what, what's key to a person's personality. And if they, for example, if a person went into a coma and came back out again, and they had lost their blank, would they still be the same person? And the blank could be they've lost their sense of humor or they've lost their memories um, or they've lost their their moral values. Are they still the same person? And it turns out that w- whether people have the same moral values before and after some event like that is the most important factor in terms of whether they're still the, still the same person. They could lose their sense of humor and forget who they are, but if they have the same values, if they're still a, a good person in the same way, then they're... Um, They've uh, that's the they're, they're still the same person. They're still that, that's what's made that's the that's what their personality is made of, as it were. Amazing. And yeah. that make yeah. and that makes sense from this
0: um cooperative point of view. I hear you. So um moral equals cooperative, and um yeah. the, the easiest way to take the hocus pocus uh, yes. out of it later. Um you published a fascinating paper last year, you and and some and some others, which looked at morality in 60 different countries um, and cultures and determined that there was a kind of universal set of rules, seven universal rules of morality across all these cultures. What are they?
1: Well, they are um, help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to your superiors, divide resources fairly, and respect others' property.
0: What, what do they, what do they, they all, they are all, um, they're all around cooperation. So, it, so, it's helping other people. It's also establishing, it's helping establish a hierarchy within the yeah. group. And because authority is critical for the group's cooperative success or respect for authority is critical for the group's success, it sort of sets up the next generation of leaders. And that's an important thing that the group has to do. Is that, is that what well, is that right? that's, that's an even further bonus. So, sure. Once, once you,
1: um, once you another I mean another way that you can display your your dominance your prowess is not just by doing one-off things like leaping um, running into a burning building but also shouldering some of the burdens of keeping cooperation going so you can provide leadership you can um, coordinate your group against uh, against external threats you can you can um, enforce contracts. you can be the you can be the judge and jury of um to make sure people don't cheat. Um you can be impartial. You can um, make fair determinations of who's done who's done what and who owes who owes whom what. So that's an even even further turbocharging uh, of morality. But even at the just very basic level, before you get to um, hierarchies or heroism, even just simple displays of prowess, if they deter aggression and f- avoid or forestall disputes um, between members of a group, that that's also solving a,
0: a problem too. Gotcha. That's super helpful. So to go through those again, family values, group loyalty, bravery, heroism that you've described, respect, fairness, and um, and and property rights.
1: And you missed out number three, which was uh, reciprocity.
0: Reciprocity apologies. Um, yeah. i
1: mean and each just to be just to be clear i mean each of those are slogans referring to a, a bigger set of um, a different moral each of those has you know a whole assembly of different morals within them but there are um there are those basic seven types so it we lots of people have said that morality has something to do with cooperation and promotes cooperation but what they haven't done is use uh, game theory to identify well what what are the different types? And just textbook game theory, textbook evolutionary game theory tells you that there are at least these seven types. And um, there's there's kin altruism, there's coordination to mutual advantage, there's um, there's social exchange, there's uh, hawk, and then there's hawk dove contests in which you can resolve contests. Com- you can resolve there's conflicts between uh, individuals that you can resolve through displays of hawkishness like heroism, um, with with the Companion displays of deference, dovish displays of deference, and you can divide. You can resolve disputes by dividing the disputed resource um, or respecting prior ownership. So these are just textbook examples of evolutionary game theory. Textbook examples of different cooperative strategies. And once you just list those different types, uh, you can you can you can just read off um, from those strategies. You can find, or rather, you can find examples of. Various moral philosophers and others at various times extolling the virtues of those different traits. So whether it's Confucius talking about the importance of um, the importance of the family, um, or it's um, it's talking about the importance of, of group loyalty or unity or solidarity. Um, whether it's social contract theorists um, arguing about the, the importance of um, doing, you know, keeping your promises and paying your debts and doing doing what. It, uh, doing what you owe to other people. Um, Virtue theorists talking about um, heroism and fortitude and humility and deference. Uh, John Rawls talking about impartiality and uh, John Locke talking about the importance of property. You can find all of these cooperative traits you can find celebrated in the literature. What you tend to find is that each, each philosopher thinks that their thing is the only thing and the most important thing. So social contract theorists think that everything's a social contract. Um, uh, virtue theorists think everything's a virtue. Um, we're now in a lucky position if we don't, if not having to, we don't have to choose one of many things, um, we can have all the things. And we have a theory that combines them all and
0: shows what they all have in common. Understood. So, so you, these are universal moral rules that you've teased out using evolutionary game theory. The games that you've just outlined for us and seen expressed across these sixty different cultures—are there yeah. are there patterns? And are, are, because clearly, clearly, these um, th- these seven rules are weighted differently across mm. cultures. But what are the patterns that you've that you've seen, and what do they tell? Us? Well, just to go, let me just go back half a step. <coughs> Excuse me. Um,
1: yeah, so the, these were de- derived from evolutionary game theory, and they are uh, they are various different compatible accounts of the evolution of different aspects of our morality. Our question was, well, the, so far so good, but are these just Western accounts of morality, or do they apply elsewhere? Do they apply all around the world, or is it just a... Um, you know, just a product of Western philosophy. So we went to the archives. We went to the ethnographic archives and looked at accounts of ethics from sixty different societies to see whether these cooperative traits were considered moral or not. And we, so we sort of tested the theory: is this, is this if this theory of morality is correct, these these traits should be considered moral everywhere. And um, so, so we tested it, and lo and behold, we found that yes, indeed, uh, in the in the thousand or so examples we found of these traits being described. Um, around the world they were um, they were always referred to they were always um, considered morally good Uh, there was there was nowhere where they were considered morally bad and we found examples of these moral rules all around the world so in terms of a pattern, they weren't the exclusive preserve of the of the west or the east or the north or the south they we found them all over the place on all on all continents yeah. Um, beyond that, the, uh, this, this ethnographic study, we, we weren't able to, um, we, we were really just seeing if, if these traits, it was, it was kind of a binary thing, were these traits considered good or bad or not? And so we weren't measuring how s- sort of strongly endorsed they were or how important they were relative to other, um, to other moral, moral values. So I can't give a definitive answer to that. But our impression was, as we mentioned before, there was a general shift between, as it, traditional and modern societies. But we're now following up that ethnographic study by collect, using a moral values, a new moral values questionnaire, morality cooperation questionnaire, to gather new data on moral values from um, countries across the world, and um, beginning with um, 40 Indo-European language groups in measuring seven types of moral values in 40 Indo-European, Indo-European language groups from Portugal to Persia. And what we can do with that data is not just look at how similar or different these different uh, language groups are, roughly speaking, their countries, but not, not always. Um, we can also look at whether, for example, uh, uh languages that are more similar that are closer together on the on the evolutionary tree of languages on the phylogeny of languages um, are also more similar when it comes to their morals if that's the case then it would imply that um or it would give a measure give us a measure of um the extent to which morals are transmitted are passed down from elders to to youngsters or are part of the different culture in these different places um as opposed to being uh, innate or um, an immediate response to local circumstances. So we, we, sh- we would very much like to uh, emulate the success of
0: ethnomusicology. That's fascinating. I, I also wonder whether um, whether there are certain specific external conditions which would privilege certain particular kinds of morality. I wonder whether cold climates have an impact on the morality. Of a group, as opposed to hot climates, or ease of access to food, or etc. etc. Is there is there is there any suggestion that might be the case? Well, um,
1: yeah. Well, it sh- it should be the case. I mean, I would that the prediction would be what you need to cooperate about determines what your morals are. Um, I'm not aware of. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head good examples of that. But I mean, in some cases, it's just it's trivially straightforward. So if your if your country is at war with another country or another group then traits like bravery and fortitude are going to be more highly valued than if your country is at peace so in some in some in many cases the variation in in moral values uh, temporarily and in different places is the prediction is very straightforward um if in terms of more complicated examples uh, there's a uh, a, a collaborator of mine um michael misiak in poland he's done some work on the morality of food waste and again not, not surprisingly he's you know whether it whether it's wrong to waste food or how wrong is it to waste food and not surprisingly he's found in some uh some of some ethnographic work that uh you know it's the more scarce food is the the more morally wrong it is to waste it which again is not Massively surprising. It's kind of what you'd expect, but it's it's just. But but the point is that it's um. Again, it just serves to underline that morality is not this magic spell. Uh, It's a it's a response to the
0: social circumstances we find ourselves in. That's fascinating. Okay, Um, big question: If there is a universal morality, why on earth do we keep on fighting? Why do we fight? (laughs) Um, Well. Classic question. Um, it's it's partly
1: because we value we prioritise different things is part of the reason, um, but the, another part of the reason is that we, we, for example, one of one of the values is loyalty to your group, and if you're a member of a different group, then that leads to clashes. So it
0: people often. So my follow up question mm-hmm. to you, Oliver. There just that was. How, because essentially what I'm asking here is how big can we get the in-group to be?
1: Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, And I, so people, it's interesting. So people often start with a kind of, you can start this discussion with a kind of cosmopolitan view that everyone everywhere is equal and we're all part of the same team. And to fall short of that and to be partial to your, your country for example is a is a moral failing um i tend to see things in a more sort of glass half full way in that we've started off from uh very small groups of not that long ago we were all living in very small groups of people and in of a few hundred or a few thousand and in fairly short order we've managed to scale that up from a few thousand to a few million or a few tens of millions to the extent that people feel some um, affiliation or affection for their countries for example so that's that's a huge we we, it's no longer the case that I only care about people in Oxford for example or even in Oxfordshire or even in England I might I might now care about if I'm was nationalistic I would care about everyone in um, the UK and I might do so more than people far away with whom I don't interact so to me that's an enormous accomplishment to scale it up to that to that degree and and sure we could we could keep going but you don't um and that's a worthwhile thing to do um but you don't get it for free you can't just magic it into existence you have to create the the scaffolding as it were to get us up to that point and organizations you know international organizations but like the UN or the EU or um, what have you are uh, obviously, tr- our attempts to do that, um, and they can they can succeed more or less. But um, uh, it's yeah, it's it's not easy. And as um, I think, as Rousseau said, you can uh, you can you can stretch. I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you can stretch the social contract so far that it, like elastic, it becomes too loose. Um, and there's a sort of uh, an optimal point. But I'm um, given our success so far. Uh, in getting it up to the millions, um,
0: I think that there's lots of lessons to learn to, to for carrying it forward. So um, would it be very useful for us to encounter a slightly nasty but not too dangerous alien species for all of us to club together and go and become <laughs> team team human against the, the, the little green men? <laughs> um, well, um, so that would have some advantage.
1: That would have some benefits, but you'd have to weigh it against the costs of a um, hostile alien force so diff- <laughs> difficult to um, to trade them off and also i mean there are um, there are costs to there can be costs to more and more cooperation and more and more as it were conformity and and rigid adherence to the rules um, obviously that's very beneficial and the right thing to do in an emergency situation but Outside of that, you might want to um, allow a bit more individual autonomy, allow people to pursue their own projects and not always be pressed into the the service of the, the collective projects of
0: others. That's fascinating. Um, I, 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 I mean, there's, like a, there's, a,
1: there's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot. And where that, is, where that sweet spot is, first of all, it's constantly moving. And secondly, it's not always easy to discern.
0: I have two more questions for you. One, um, if morality is this sort of deeply ingrained, both, nur- both sort of nature and nurture um, tool that we have at our disposal, do we as individuals have any individual agency over our ideas, of our, of our opinions, our morality, our behaviour? Um, well, is there such a thing, therefore, as an as individual morality? Can you describe somebody as moral or are they just simply performing a series of functions?
1: Well, I mean, put it this way, do you have much control over your taste buds, over what things, you know, taste good to you? Um, On the one hand, no, you don't. That's part of your physiology, it's part of what you need to survive and thrive. And they're kind of a given. On the other hand, do you get to decide what to have for tea? Yes, you do. So they're not they're not they're not necessarily antagonistic. So similarly, when it comes to morality, you know we have uh, we have our moral taste buds. We we can't most of us not not everyone, but most people most of the time are motivated to do good. They want to um, they care for their families. They feel affections for their group. They want to return favors and so on. Um, but exactly, but there's still quite a lot of wiggle room, and exactly which one you prioritize there's a lot of uncertainty um, which creates the an opportunity for decision making and for uh, asking questions of your of yourself and your others and um, who do i uh, who do i care about who do i want to be who do i want uh, what do i want other people
0: to think of me Oliver your director of research at kindness.org what what is kindness.org so kindness.org is a a
1: charity a non-profit organization based in the states and they exist to promote kindness to help people choose kindness to, to do the right thing and i am the research director so we we investigate the causes and consequences of kindness to some extent that's drawing on the work i've been discussing so why do, why are people kind in the first place why do they why why are people ever nice why are they um why do they help out others why are they altruistic what is altruism where does it come from um, and it's partly, so it's looking at the sort of background psychology of that. Um, and it's also looking at what are the, the costs and benefits of different kind acts that you could perform and hence which are the most cost-effective things to do. What, if you want to put your good where it will do the most, which of all the thousands of different kind acts you could do from holding the door open for people or giving blood or volunteering your time or money or something. Of all those different um, opportunities, which which are the most cost effective, or what's the most cost effective uh, collection of kind acts?
0: So um, that's what we do. And how do you motivate people to be kinder? What are the what are the psychological triggers? What's the what is, what's the what's the environment you need to create to allow for kindness to flourish? Well, our, our heuristic is that
1: um, people. I mean, most most people. Are kind most of the time not not everyone always there are and you know people vary some most people, most of us are average we are in the middle um there's a few sinners at one end of the distribution and a few saints at the other but most people are kind of in the middle and we our conjecture is that what stops people being slightly kinder just moving up a notch or two is that they they lack um the incentive they lack the information and they lack, they have a sense of isolation, they don't. And what I mean by that is they lack um, the incentive in and they don't always realise um, how beneficial even the small acts can be. Um, they lack information in the sense that then they're, they're not quite, even if they want to help, they're not quite sure what to do, which of all the different options they could do. And they, um, and thirdly, they don't want to be, feel sort of isolated or vulnerable. They don't, they might want to do the right thing and they might know what to do, but they don't want to be the only one doing it. They don't want to feel like they might be exploited or they're being taken advantage of or they're the only one doing it and no one else is, so it's a bit of a waste of time. So we try and address all those three things by um, uh, highlighting what impact your kindness can have, so increasing your incentive when you see the benefits it has, um, in providing people with information on, the, the like I said, the costs and benefits of different things they could be doing so they can choose wisely, um, and also through our, Online platform, creating a, a sort of bit of sense of community where you're not just acting in isolation. You can see other people doing the, choosing the choosing the same act as you, and reporting back on what happened and um, whether whether it went well, and sort of sharing their experiences. So um, you can see that you're it's not just you; other people are doing it too. And that feeling of doing something together and being part of a, uh, a you know, something larger than yourself is very reassuring and very motivating.
0: Oliver, how would you how would you um, help us as individuals? What would you recommend us as individuals? We all do as individuals to make kindness, to spread kindness more um, more widely. Well,
1: so in some of these, um, there are many sort of lists of kind acts you can do and, and sort of random acts of kindness type lists, um, and often people tend to think that, you know, the only options are to be selfish or utterly self-sacrificial so, so you read amazing stories about people donating a kidney for example but those aren't the only options being self completely self-centered or doing something amazing like that are not the only options there as it were the, end, the extreme ends of the spectrum and in the middle there's loads of little things that you can do like um, uh, like writing someone a, a nice letter or holding a door open for someone or donating blood um, or uh you know um uh, recycling your um your old spectacles or signing up to a, an effective charity there's loads of things in the middle that you could be doing um that that's the whole point that are relatively low cost for you but could be massively beneficial for somebody else so um I would encourage encourage people not you know not to feel they fall short of the extreme measures, but rather to find the level of kindness that they are comfortable with, um, and and see choose kindness, seize the opportunity when it presents itself. So that moment when you're um, you're deciding should I should I stop at this? this person seems to be in a this person has dropped all their shopping on the floor or something. Um, should I should I stop to help them or should I just I'm a bit I'm a bit late. I'll just keep going. In those just little moments of uncertainty, just expect where it could go either way. Just experiment with the uh, taking the kind route, taking the altruistic route and see what happens and find that uh, and often exp- some studies have shown that people are surprised how much they Enjoy helping others. They're surprised by how rewarding it is. If you ask them in advance, would you rather help yourself or help others? They say I'd rather help myself. But if you ask them afterwards, you find that the people who helped others are are happier. To their surprise, so you know your mileage might vary. But our main message is: give it a try, uh, experiment with it, and <laughs> find find what's um
0: find your sweet spot. Oliver, what a place to end this fascinating podcast. I'm enormously grateful for the time you've given us That was the Palia podcast from palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.